HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Our guest today is just as skilled at facing challenges as she is at crafting Arab pastries and more. Through the pandemic and an oven fire, she succeeded and grown with plans for new space coming soon. I was lucky to meet Reem at Fab in Charleston this past June and was immediately inspired by all she had to share and um, was essentially like, you have to come on our show opening soon and tell everybody about all the amazing things that you are working on. And then I emailed her immediately and set the state. So I'm excited to have you. Um, for those of you who don't know, Reem is the founder of Reem's California. Um, and she is growing quite a community in Oakland and San Francisco. So welcome to the show. So excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So tell, um, so you started out as a cafe, but Reams has grown into so much, much more. Can you tell, um, tell us and our, and our listeners a little bit more about your business and, and where you are today? Sure. Um, so Reams, California was officially uh, founded in 2015, actually. It predates our first brick and mortar as a very small farmer's market operation. Um, we were born out of a women's business incubator program called La Cocina. Um, and really, our mission from the very beginning was to build community, connect people's people across cultures and experiences through the warmth of Arab bread and hospitality. Um, Arab bread <laughs> in particular was my obsession for the last 10 years and my shift to culinary. And uh, we didn't have a lot of financing uh, or, or capital to really open a restaurant. So we started as a small farmer's market operation. And to our surprise, or maybe not so surprised, we worked really hard. Um, we, uh, we had quite a following right from the get-go and grew our farmer's market from one to five farmer's markets over the course of a year and a half. Um, yeah, and I was kind of busting at the seams. La Cocina is a shared commercial kitchen space with all these other 
fabulous, you know, um, women entrepreneurs, uh, but it was time to go. <laughs> they were like, we need to find you a space. I don't, I wasn't sure if I was ready to have a space, but. Uh, you got we, kicked out. You're like, you're too big. You have to leave. Yeah. <laughs> too much dough everywhere. <laughs> uh, we were fighting over that mixer. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, La Cucina helped me uh, locate this, you know, beautiful spot in the Fruitvale neighborhood district of, uh, Oakland, California, which, you know, at that point, you know, Oakland had been changing a lot and rapidly, but Fruitvale was one of the spaces I felt like that was still had people from all walks of life. Um, And so it felt, and it was right on a transit line. We're on the um, BART system. And uh, so it just felt like very serendipitous. And yeah, we opened our doors in 2017 and yeah, we're a bakery and restaurant, and our specialty is really um, manaish, which is a flatbread enjoyed in the um, Levantine region where my parents are from, um, Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Jordan. Um, and it's basically like a flatbread slathered with zaatar and olive oil, and then it can be topped with anything and everything. And it's just a fun street food, and I wanted I wanted that to be like a main street food in the U.S. I, that was kind of my goal is to popularize it and make it fun and accessible. And um, yeah, and I'm, I'm very proud that Manaish and Manushe, the singular version of that, are uh, a very common term that people know now um, as part of this, this landscape of uh, cuisines in, in America. So yeah, I feel very proud. When you first, was there a lot of like education for your customer when you first opened and what was like the community response? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing is that we always had, you know, part of our uh, ethos was show, not tell. And so the idea of making fresh Manaish street food style, um, you know, our farmer's markets, we made them on these traditional griddles straight from Lebanon just the act of doing that in front of people, it was like moths to flame, you know? People mm-hmm. would come and they'd ask questions. I'm like, whoa, what is that? And we're like, back up a little bit, health department. <laughs> You're going to get burned. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was a good conversation starter. Like, this is what this is. And I think the smells and the aromas, they were just so novel to people. Um, so, yeah, the showing, not telling. We always have had open kitchens where people can see their fresh, their, their bread made fresh to order. Um but we, we, yeah, we definitely from our menus to our signage um, to how we train our front of house uh, really made it a point to educate folks. But as soon as people tasted it, they were hooked, you know. And um, yeah, we have some things are called the Arabic term, but a lot of our um, a lot of our flatbreads have kind of fun spins on you know puns and. Um, more English words so that people don't feel intimidated by it. Um, So I think that that made it a lot more accessible for people who may have never had, um, had Arab food in general. So beyond falafel and shawarma, of course. (laughs) Right, right. The like classic sort of Americanized ones that we see. Yeah. And we wanted to really show people that like Arab food ways are just, it's, there's just so much more expansive and sophisticated and we call it Arab street food made with California love, but really that's how Arab cuisine is. It's seasonal. It really celebrates the vegetable. Um, it's it's localized, unfortunately, because of 
you know, the, the political situation, a lot of that has been, at, you know, at risk. But I think living in California among the bounty of ingredients we have, we've been really lucky to, to showcase that. I mean, you mentioned the political situation, and I know, you know, sort of feel like you're, or maybe you don't feel like your business is, but I think like in some ways your business has been innately political. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you've navigated that and, and yeah. you know, what your response has been. Yeah, I mean, food is inherently political. Uh, as as an Arab and as a person of color in this country, you can't, uh, you can't separate one from the other just by existing, cooking food from Palestinian foodways or Syrian foodways. It's a story, right? It's a story of being an immigrant in America, of what we had to face, of what my parents had to face. Um, so you really can't separate that. Um, but we, you know, again, Reams doesn't really, we don't beat politics over people's head. We just live our truth, right? And authentically ourselves. And from that, it's, um, you know, people learn and connect to us and ask questions and yeah, we. I don't. I, I. I. feel it's important never to separate food from its lineage, right, and its story, because um, that can just tell so many lessons. And um, yeah, but unfortunately, you know, I think growing up in the U.S., um, the immigrants who came before me, you know, my my parents' generation, a lot of the Arab cuisine was masked behind more broad broad stroking terms like Mediterranean food or Middle Eastern food. I mean, and some of the Arabs even called their food Greek food. I'm like, that is not Greek. Oh, God. <laughs> um, but it is, you know, like the Greeks came and borrowed some stuff. You know, food is not like static either. But I knew it was because there's an anti-Arab sentiment in this country. You know, when the government is at war with Arab countries, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not a, you know, you're just trying to get by and trying to make, um, a living and support your family. So I get why they did that. And I made a very conscious decision when I opened Reams that I was from a new generation where I wasn't going to be afraid to speak up for, you know, things that I felt were wrong, the racism that I experienced. And food was really a way, it was kind of my coming out <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, as a Palestinian, as an Arab, like here I am, you know. Um, but yeah, that hasn't come without its challenges you know, newsflash, racism still exists. <laughs> no. Misconceptions. <laughs> you don't say, yeah, of yeah, course, right. People's misconceptions mm-hmm. uh, of what a Palestinian is and what we struggle with is still there. And it, it takes a lot, a lot more. And sometimes that is exhausting, but um, it's very rewarding to see people really shift their perspective Um you know, on Arab food ways, the, just the act of visibilizing us when we're, we've been invisible for so long um, has been a very healing process for me. And I think my community, I mean, I, I joke that my, my target market, you know, when you learn how to open a business, it's like, who's your target market going to be? I'm like, it's like the average American who wants healthier cuisine, who is into other cultures. It's kind of like that white, Berkeley hippie, um, right next door. <laughs> and, and that is, that's definitely part of our demographic and I love them, you know? Um, yeah. but one of, one of the, one of the most, the best surprises was that my community came out and, you know, just tenfold, uh, because they were just so proud that we were putting them on the map and, 
um, we were popular and we didn't have to water down our values to do it, you know? And I think that that makes them really proud and they're willing, you know, back home, you can pay for a manushe, like $3 a manushe, but like they'll pay that extra six, $7 because they, um, because it's that good, but also because they're supporting um, this larger project of, you know, putting us on the map. So I think that has been like the best that my community, you know, they're the, anybody from their own community is your hardest critic. So to be able to um, build this space where everybody from all walks of life enjoy the food is really awesome. It goes back to what you started out saying was show them, don't tell, which is exactly. you know, show, show who authentically you are, which, I, which is like a new great catchphrase. That's my number one takeaway so far. Yes. Um, I tell. love that. Double mm-hmm. down show, on yourself. Tell. Yeah. Show, don't tell. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then tell, so you've been scaling the business. Yes. Um, so first shop was in, you know, from farmer's market to cafe in Oakland to how a location. Do, sorry. How long did you do the farmer's markets? Um, we kept the, the farmer's shop? markets up until 2019, believe it or not. We were, um, you know, I think one of the things that I really learned uh, just having done this for a little bit is that diversifying your revenue streams uh, was a really important piece of the work. Um, You know, we're a social justice oriented business. So one of the things that we were trying to do was figure out how to make a restaurant (laughs) sustainable, how to pay our workers really well. but also not, you know, we were in a, in a neighborhood that whose income wasn't necessarily able to afford all the products should we be able to price it um, in a way that supports, you know, farmers and workers. So we had to make sure that there are options available for everyone. <laughs> um, and so when our restaurant sales, you know, weren't doing as well, then our catering could kind of pick up for that. We started in catering and farmers markets. Um, and, and the farmer's markets, we just had like an amazing following. So we didn't want to lose that. Um, but that came with its challenges. I mean, obviously staffing three different kinds of operations, but the farmer's markets were really kind of our marketing tool, um, to get people to come to the bakery. Um, and then we eventually became a destination spot as a result of that. Um, but when we decided to open a second restaurant, I mean, part of it was that our kitchen was very, very small in our Oakland location. And so we found that we needed more space to actually do the production. And we got this really, really amazing opportunity to expand our um, ex- expand our operations to a new restaurant in San Francisco, which was never part of the plan. Um, but these women who owned a staple in San Francisco called Mission Pie, it was a pie shop. Um, and it's where we started where we did our pop-ups way back in the day. <laughs> um, so it was full circle and they were, they reached out to us and they're like, we're trying to get out. <laughs> we're done. We want to kind of fold in the towel. They must've known the pandemic was coming. I really feel like. Oh, this is pre-pandemic. <laughs> yeah. This was pre-pandemic in 2019. They reached out to us and they said, we really think you would do well here. They had a like full on bakery, you know, like their infrastructure for a bakery. So I wouldn't have, had to do as much um, construction. Just Did you buy their business or you yeah. took over their nascent? Yeah, I, I essentially bought their business at a very, very, you know, almost nominal price. Um, and uh, they, um, yeah, they retired and went to live 
you know, live a better life, I think, <laughs> than owning nice. a restaurant. And um, we took over the space and um, we opened. And, and so we decided when we were doing that, that something had to give. And our farmer's market was the hardest to staff. Nobody wants to. It's very, very grueling work to have to set up a kitchen and break it down every... Schlepping, yeah. yeah. That's going through yeah. my mind when you're talking about doing... Yeah, we had some turnover in that sense, you know. So I was like, okay, we can, we can, now we can focus on these brick and mortars and have a multi-location situation. And uh, who knew what was going to come right around the corner? Right around that time, I had sold my book, um, which is now out, and... Things were going really well, and I felt like we had momentum on our side. And uh, we opened our doors in March, what is it, March 15th of 2020, three days oh my before God. the shutdown. <laughs> Great timing. <laughs> Great timing. And uh, we had throngs of people in our space. <laughs> and we had a super spreader event for the grand we had a super opening. Super spreader event for the grand opening, basically, and then we shut our doors right after. And uh, yeah, I think what was to follow was a really grueling experience, and you know, learning experience. But in a way, um, I think that it helped us reprioritize what we needed to do. I think that you know, for small food businesses, and I think a lot of food business entrepreneurs can relate to this, there's this pressure to grow. If you can't, if you don't grow, um, there's only so much you can scale. And for me, I wanted a, I don't know, I wanted a trajectory for my employees. I don't want them just to do the same thing every day and get bored. And um, I wanted pathways to leadership and all of that. And, you know, our Oakland location at the time was you know, in all honesty, struggling, um, you know, the economy, you know, has its ups and downs and restaurants are fickle, <laughs> you tough. know, one, yeah. one week you'll have like a, an awesome week and the next week you're like, where is everybody? And it's really like all about real estate and where you are. And even if you do that, how you leverage that. And if you have the capital to leverage that and, we were a cash poor restaurant. We, I opened Dreams with, you know, loans from friends and family and a few SBAs. And that was it. You know, we didn't have any cash to open. Um, so it was really kind of make or break every week. And when the pandemic hit, um, we were, our Oakland location was in a transit line. And all of the people who worked in that plaza were now working for, were sheltering in place. And so our um, our restaurant plummeted in sales, about 85%, I think. And uh, we had to shut our doors indefinitely for a good year before I decided that we were going to sell it. Um, and, yeah. So you sold the Oakland location, and the San Francisco location is still um, Correct. Is back yeah. open. So and, we, mm-hmm. we, we did an interesting thing, which is like, we knew Oakland, that particular location was not going to be forever. Um, it was a practice ground, right, for my employees. But I had all these employees that were so loyal and amazing. And I didn't want to completely stop the operations altogether. And ironically, we had a 10-year vision. We did this, like, 10-year plan in the January of 2020. And one of those, sort of the third prong of our you know, we had this idea of a flagship that would be central. 
Um, and then different things kind of spawning off that flagship bakery. Um, and one of them was wholesale. And we just decided, well, people are at home. Maybe we should pivot, <laughs> pivot, pivot, pivot. Um, and our landlords were not kind to us. They didn't want to give us any relief. But we were like one of the major partners of World Central Kitchen for a good year and a half. And so we were able to keep that location. And we were, we, I think we made over like almost 150,000 meals out of that location, wow. that small little kitchen that we couldn't sustain as a restaurant <laughs> um, in, the, in that year and a half before we, we, we you know, what, is, what do you call it? <laughs> Quit when you're ahead kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that let you feed your, or that let you pay your yeah, employees for working My out. base yeah. employees, yeah. And then the employees that, you know, weren't meant to work at Reams, I think. Everything kind of leveled itself out so we have these six to seven amazing employees um and we you know we decided that we were going to have a flagship one day but we needed to kind of see this pandemic out and see what happens and um we were able to get a commercial kitchen location like literally right down the street from our old location so it was slated to be a fine dining restaurant, which I thought was never going to work in that neighborhood. <laughs> and you were <laughs> was, right. And I was right, yeah. Um, and it never came to fruition because of the pandemic. It was um, a partnership with Restaurant Opportunity Center and Ella Baker Center, which is a racial justice nonprofit here in the Bay. And So it was like part of our ethos. I was like, this is perfect. They want to prove a model of people who treat their workers well and you know, retain and hire locally. And I'm like, I'm already doing that. Let me be in your kitchen. Um, and so we were able to move our operations and slowly grow our wholesale program from there. Um, and that became sort of our incubator space, so to speak, uh, while we find the perfect location for this, you know, vision that we have of a flagship. So tell us a little bit about the wholesale. So like, I mean, you started off the conversation by saying that you believe in diversifying the business, which you've done this over and over again. So tell us a little bit about like the wholesale and how that helps to feed the you know brick and mortars and, and helps with overall like revenue and health of the business. Yeah, tell us too, like, what, what you mean by wholesale. Is it, is it grocery stores or restaurants or both? Oh, that's, yeah, very good question. Um, so by wholesale, we mean mostly to retailers, to um, grocery stores and online platforms that kind of serve as grocery. So to the individual consumer who may not ha live close to Reams or have access to Reams, but really loves Reams. <laughs> we're like, how do we get as much bread into people's homes and hands as possible and have that experience? And we decided to do, you know, I didn't want to do preservatives or anything like that. And bread is kind of a fickle um, products to do that with. So we decided to do a frozen take and bake product. And I think a lot of pizza places were pivoting to that during the pandemic, but we just kind of leaned in on it. Um, and uh, yeah, so that that's the primary consumer. Although, you know, who knows what's going to happen with restaurants, but I would love to see Reams dough and pita uh in, in other people's restaurants because it, it is it is a hard um it's a hard product to maintain and maintain consistency on and 
I think, you know, we've spent the last, the better part of the last, you know, seven years trying to perfect our sourdough and, and do something that's foolproof enough that, you know, employees can do it. Um, so that would be the hope secondarily, but, um, but yeah, the main, main consumers would be, uh, retailers. Um, and what the vision was also not just the retailers, but to have, um, you know, a big, almost like a workshop style where you're like, you're entering and you enter the worker's space, you know, it's mostly kitchen all around you and you're watching this bread just come out the oven. It's just like an immersive experience and then a small footprint for, for the more traditional retail. So like a grab and go lunch and breakfast cafe style where you can get your daily bread. Um, but you're like part of the community and that I think both of our um, locations in Oakland and San Francisco have been larger seating <laughs> than we've, you know, we, we weren't planning to be sort of a full service restaurant. So th they've had their challenges. So this would be a much easier and, and the wholesale would pay for the retail. It would pay for us to be a community space so that we didn't have to rely on that revenue to keep changing our model on people because Above all, we just want to be a community space. But the wholesale has the sky's the limit in terms of where you can grow. And then there's economies of scale as you get bigger, you know, that there's more efficiencies and people can make a really decent living. And Reams, you know, our vision was always to be worker owned and for workers to feel that profit. Um, so I needed to give them something with more longevity. Um, so that was the idea of wholesale. And then obviously catering, you know, once things stabilize, that continues to grow. It, you know, our catering program was really gutted, um, but that was a huge part of our revenue. We were making a good chunk of revenue just from our catering. So, yeah. And then, the, you know, our kiosks or our restaurant or like other little outposts would be smaller footprints so that we can wholesale to ourselves, um, if that makes sense. So you kind of have little satellites if you will of reams that are a little bit more manageable and everything's coming from the mothership <laughs> yeah no we had um andrew tarlow is like a fairly prolific um restaurateur here in new york and he he's done this really well where he like and he came on the show and talked about he created a bakery because he wanted to buy bread and so it's like a, he has all these sort of businesses that feeds each other and it's sort of like this amazing ecosystem um and makes your business more sustainable it's like such a smart totally. approach yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, and you so you started talking a little bit about you you mentioned a kiosk. So that's is that what's next? Do we have a kiosk coming? Yeah. Yeah. So we have been um actually we we were in plans to have a kiosk in Jack London Square in downtown in Oakland uh, right before the pandemic hit and then those developers kind of fell through. Um which might have been a blessing in disguise at this point, but um, but yeah, we uh, we've been negotiating a uh, a kiosk in the Ferry Building, which is a iconic um, space in San Francisco. It's uh, just amazing. All different artisan brands um, there. People visit it far and wide, and it has you know the first and most known farmers market in the country, and that's where where Reams got its start. So. Uh, one of our farmers markets were right there every Saturday morning for a good better part of four years um, vending and we had a huge following um, and so an opportunity to um, 
have a kiosk inside the ferry building presented itself. And we've been working um, to hopefully um, open our doors uh, and, um, uh, you know, for more than just Saturdays, but uh, kind of an everyday thing where you don't have to break break down and set up a kitchen every time <laughs> to have a home. Yeah. Will the kiosk be, will it be supplied by the commissary kitchen or will Correct. it? Yeah, so all of the production would come out of the commissary kitchen, um, but... Um, the eventual, so we're, we're moving into a pop-up space to begin with as we build out a space with a hood um, to have our traditional sausages, um, the, the griddles that we bake our breads off of, the way that people in the farmer's market know them. Right. Um, but we're going to do sort of an abridged version of that farmer's market style with a ventless oven. I was going to ask you, because that sounds like such a interesting you know part of how people you know walked up and, and saw the product like you said the don't the show don't tell how do you think about incorporating some element of that as you expand so that people still have that you know that, that sort of beautiful experience of seeing oh yeah made? yeah yeah so it'll be a slightly different but i think people still get that beautiful that delicious taste right. um but yeah i think we, we there's so much to reams is that's a show for people but i think somebody joked with me that like the biggest marketing tool for us in the ferry building was people, it's a really good grab and go snack while you're shopping because it's a, it's a flatbread that you roll up. So it's, it's, it's traditionally slathered in, you know, either a cheese and meat or zatar or some herb mix. And then you put a fresh vegetable on top and then you roll it and you put, you hold it in parchment. And so people just walking, or right. like a uh, walking, <laughs> um, like the fresh bread and zatar yeah. smell. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. Yeah. Like, where did you get that? You know, and so cheesy yeah. bread rolled up. Yeah, hello. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so we're we're really excited about that format because I think it's going to really work well for the ferry building because you are kind of on the go. There's not, but we're hoping to build a seating area and really make it homey because part of the the brand is really our Arab hospitality, making you feel that warmth. So. We'll do it in different ways, whether it be the music or the scents or the, you know, all the all the little things, little touches. And so, and as you're expanding, you're, you know, you, you talked a little bit about how you funded the first business through like compilation of SBA loans and friends and family loans and things like that. And so, how how are you thinking about capitalizing and funding these businesses, like as you as you expand? As I grow, yeah. yeah. I think, um, I mean, first to say that. Uh, this is probably not a surprise to you as an entrepreneur, but um, being a woman of color, trying to, or just a woman trying to get funding is 10 times harder. <laughs> 10 times harder. And even by the way, when you're a husband and wife team, that's man yeah. and woman founded, I think people yeah. don't realize us. 2% of venture funding goes to women. Only 15% of venture funding goes to female and male founded businesses. Wow, that's really so interesting. Yeah, but if you're right, so that means that like eighty three percent goes to male only owned. So yeah. thank you, Alex, for being my partner because you're at a disadvantage. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting statistic. Yeah, it's really yeah. yeah, yeah. Because you know, it's like up until then we've ha we had. Um, so I was about to do a series A um, right before I opened uh, my mission spot. Uh, and 
you know, I was working with partners that were values aligned. You know, the spheres that I'm in are more like the, uh, what's the, there's like an official terminology for it. I guess it's like social venture capital or, um, and even among those crowds, there was sort of not, there was a lack of understanding of um, what it takes for the entrepreneur, you know, what they were asking for some of the, you know, they wanted to be way more involved <laughs> than I wanted them to be. And there was like a lack of trust and you can show them all the numbers and show them all the media things and it's not enough. Whereas I, I really felt like, and I had been in this space enough to see some of my uh, male restaurateur counterparts get checks written right away with no questions asked. So that was a very frustrating experience for me. And luckily, you know, when the pandemic hit, I halted, but the idea of that growth capital was really to invest in the infrastructure of REAMS, the administrative hiring, you know, because at this point it's, it was a grassroots operation. I learned how to do everything as I went. <laughs> right. And it's like, sometimes you can't, at a certain point you have to get people who know how to fly the plane. Um, so that was the thought behind it. So we stopped. And then, um, well, I guess I should say the impetus for us now picking back up fundraising again um, is that we did, lo we did locate a, a space uh, for our flagship. It's a 3,600 square foot shell in the heart of downtown Oakland. It's beautiful. It's like the, the, you know, up until now, we've just been moving into other people's spaces and trying to figure out how to make it our own with the little money that we had. <laughs> we had our get, we had our grit. You know, that's what we had going for us. Um, and this is a chance to really do something and do it well and do it thoughtfully. And so I was like, okay, this is, you know, this is worth the investment. Um, it's the biggest investment I've ever had to, you know, do. And luckily the developers are putting in some TI money. They, they do believe in our concept. Um, but, you know, we're going to have to put up a lot of money. And um, I wanted to make sure that whoever, whatever investors I brought on really understood the concept that Reams wants to be a worker-owned space eventually. And so their money is going to have to be patient. And what they're a part of is a model that's so different than, you know, all the other models out there for restaurants. Um, and it's hard to find those. Like, how do you find an investor to give you half a million dollars? And, you know, they, they might be not first in line. <laughs> it's hard to convince. Um, but luckily we've, you know, the universe has a way when you put yourself out there and you put your values out there, you're going to attract the people with the same values. And we've been working this last year to um, really figure out which partners we want to work with. It's like now's the time to be picky. Um, and we um, have sort of a core set of investors that are working with us who are community funds um, and they understand the worker ownership piece of it and we're structuring the deal to really allow for that that piece too um, and then um, you know our capital stack will look a little bit like that with also a little bit of debt and then um, closing it out with a community we fund our campaign because community has always been a part of Reams, so we want we want the place to feel like it's worker and community owned 
and when will the um, so that's amazing. I mean, congratulations Thank on getting you. Um, investors to buy in on your vision. I know it's time consuming um, and it takes yes. a lot of emotional and mental job. bandwidth. It's a full time trust <laughs> we know. <laughs> Mentally, emotionally, it's a full time job. I get it. Um, yeah, so that's a huge congrats um, and very exciting. And so I know this project is hasn't been publicly announced yet. Um, yeah. So how. So I know, so when will you, how do you like think about launching the, yeah. sort of the, the crowdfunding campaign around it? Well, that's, we're hoping to do that within the next few months. We're, we're just very close to signing a lease. I mean, part of part, you know, it's a chicken and the egg thing of funding and, and signing. Um, but I, I'm hoping that we can announce it by the end of the summer and then, you know, really use the WeFunder as a way to galvanize folks. I would have to say, unfortunately, um, our Oakland base might think that we abandoned them or something. <laughs> it's like, no, we want to be in Oakland. Oakland is my heart. I've lived here for almost 18 years now. So we knew we wanted to be back in Oakland. We just needed to find the right way to come back. Um, but we have such an amazing following right here in Oakland. And yeah, so it may look like we just kind of like, you know, aborted and, and just stuck in San Francisco. But no, the, both um, both spaces are equally as important to us. You know, our mission location is literally right around the corner from La Cucina where we got our start, where our first farmer's markets were, where we popped up. But Oakland has been where we really built um, a grassroots community that supported us through the thick and thin so, yeah, we're hoping that that will really excite people to want to be investors. And, um, you know, when it opens to, you know, I think that that is for for us, the other business or for me personally, but I think my team team members would agree. Um, we're, we're, we're much less build it and they will come. We're just like, fuck it. Let us let them build it with us. You know, they'll much, be much more <laughs> invested if they build it with us. So that's always been sort of our approach to, in fact, you know, our, I, I have to say, our, I, I just remembered this was like, we won an open table contest back in 2016 um, to get $50,000 uh, in Kickstarter money for our community to help us out the, the like final challenge of the, uh, of the contest was for us to raise money. And it was such a fun experience. And yeah, we got the $50,000 to open our restaurant or whatnot, but you know, people's like one of the, uh, one of the prizes was like people's names painted and Arabic on our walls and, you know, things like that. And, you know, and those were our customers. So it's like what we built out of those things were equally as important. So I'm really hoping this campaign will be like that in more intensity. So many good nuggets. I love it. Fuck it. Let them build it with us and, yes. uh, and, sh- and <laughs> show them. Don't, don't tell don't them. Tell I'm them. like, <laughs> fuck it. Build it with us. Yeah. Um, I okay, love we it. don't know what we're doing. The vulnerability is... <laughs> You know, it's very appealing to people. They want to feel like they're part of something. People like to feel part of something. Yeah. I'm Chaba Peribán, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 
818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Al, should we do order fire? Yes, absolutely. So we have 10 questions, 10 minutes. We usually make you, if you're in New York, we would be making you cook along while you're doing this. So oh, wow. <laughs> One of the three uh, is dropped, makes it a little easier. But we're going to start, the, and they're all just sort of quick answer questions. Uh, fav- what is your favorite menu item? The Pali Cali. And what is the Pali Cali? The Pali Cali is a remix of a pr- traditional Palestinian dish called Musakhan, which is a chicken braised in sumac and caramelized onions. But we make it on a manushe, and we put arugula and avocado to make it, you know, a little bit of Pali, a little bit of Cali. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It sounds delicious. Yeah. Most ordered food menu item. The Pali Cali. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, yeah. a, it's a tie. It's a tie, actually, between our, um, you know, our trademark, the basic, the za'atar, um, with veg mix. So you can customize your flatbread, but that's called the classic in, in Reem speak. Got it. Um, tell us the best food cost item on the menu. Ooh. Probably hummus. Hummus? Yeah, Makes either sense. the zata bread or hummus, yeah. I was going to tell you the worst food cost item. I went through that project, product. You can add that. 11 questions, oh, yeah. 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. Worst food cost item. <laughs> we, have a, we have a fermented, um, funky, like, yogurt red pepper sauce that um, is kind of our tomato-based manusha. It's so good. It's like, you know... It's it's a it's a very unique thing that the Lebanese love, and they were like rallying for me to have it. But it's just so labor intensive, and but it's like a heritage menu item. So there would be a revolt if I take it off. But <laughs> I went through the cost of it with somebody from Eater who was writing an article for Eater, and I was like, "Damn, <laughs> we may be losing money on this when we deliver." <laughs> What is it being? Is it the time to ferment it? It's the time. It's the no, yeah. yeah it's the time. You're, we're making everything from scratch. So we ferment the yogurt with the bulgur. You have to kind of take care of that, and then we make a red Fresno and red pepper um, chili paste, and then that gets blended and and mixed with um, you know chopped tomatoes and onions and aromatics, and then it gets slathered onto the flatbread with very good akawi cheese which is a soft brine cheese yeah it's a really really delicious but it's a heritage manusha for sure you can't get rid of that i know (laughs) i see why there would be a revolt yeah um what's something that you were doing to make your business more sustainable 
I am taking care of myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is. Like that. Yeah, love, yeah, love that that's, that's been a big one. I think that was, and drawing boundaries. I think, you know, we don't draw boundaries enough as leaders um, and help people really figure things out on their own. Um, but also, you know, spread the gospel of self care. It really helps everybody when you model it, at least. Show, don't tell. <laughs> show, don't show, tell. Don't tell. Um, you talked about this a little bit, and I'm curious as you grow and, and your challenges in the past, but how do you plan to hire and retain great employees? Uh, we've always uh, recruited our employees through the great employees we have now. Uh, so that that's part of it. I think really relying on our uh, networks, um, but worker ownership is a big incentive for people to stay and learn and grow and work through their challenges. And we had an apprenticeship program this last 15 months with a core of our employees who are preparing themselves to take on worker ownership. And that has, that has just yielded so many rewards. Like we're not a technically worker owned space yet, but the whole culture has changed where I don't have to worry about everything uh, as the sole business owner. So I think those two things. Can you, can you tell our employees, like what our, our employees, our listeners, um, yeah. what, like what that means? Are, are, are people, our employees like vesting shares in the company as they stay with you? How does, how does that work quickly? Yeah. Um, not, not technically. So what would happen as a group, there would be a man- managing member co-op that, uh, where, you know, workers would get voted and they, they have to figure out what possessed, you know, comprise, like what uh, classifies someone as an owner. It might be that they put in more time into um, the business related things. Um, so it's in their time, like sweat equity. Um, there might be a little buy-in uh, just to have skin in the game and it would come out of their checks. But as a group, they would buy me out. Um, if that makes sense, they would buy a big share and then they would have governance. Um, so they would sit on a board. It would be a representative board. Not everybody would sit on it, but it would represent sort of the will of the workers. Um, and they would get the profit. They would get a portion of the profit, the way that's divvied up between investors and me as the owner, instead of me as the owner, it would give, get divvied up with them based on hours worked. So, Yeah. It's complicated. There's like a whole legal structure to it, but basically, what they would ha- what would change for them is that they have more responsibilities. Um, not, you know, you would not just be a line cook, but you'd be responsible for being on the committee for marketing or on a committee for finance. You'd have to learn that stuff. Um, you'd put in more time, and you'd get privileges of governance, right? Like if Greens were to expand, it would go to a vote or something, um, and you'd get to, to have a say in it. Very cool. Um, and I can imagine why that would be motivating people. Yes. Um, what is your worst um, developing or scaling or building moment so far? Just one. Uh, when we thought we could be a full-time wedding catering service. Oh. A full service, sorry. Whoa. A full service wedding catering. Um, I had come out of full service. I was a pastry chef, and my sales manager also was like an on-site catering manager. And we're like, we could do this. Like we could be, but it's like 
we can't do that. Whole <laughs> <laughs> roasted lamb with fancy plateware and you know all the things, but you know we scaled that back a little bit. There are limitations. Maybe one day, but <laughs> not today. Good to know your limits. Yes, we did. We did do a whole lamb roast once with. Yeah, it was quite quite amazing. We'll do that for friends, but it has to be low key. Um, tell us your most influential role model. It can be within or outside the hospitality industry. Oh, there are so many. Um, let me think. I would say my role models are really the women at La Cocina. Um, some of the businesses that you know, were able to scale before me. Uh, they were just like street vendors and now they have enterprises. Um, I think of the owner of um, Alicia's Tamales de los Mais. She was like a tamale vendor and now she has like a 4,500 4, square foot factory and vending wow. the Whole Foods and all that. So just to see these um, women who had much less than me and to watch them in the kitchen scale their operations, it's, it's really inspiring. And she's one of many of those kinds of stories. Amazing. Um, this might flow into that best business resource or advice you've received. Hmm. Um, ask for help. <laughs> you can't do everything. You can't know everything. I think, um, yeah, I mean, La Cocina has been, I've been part of every entrepreneurship program you can think of here in the Bay Area I've been part of. I've been part of accelerator programs um, but I remember when I was starting my first restaurant, the director at the time, um, Caleb Zegas, was really brilliant, but he told me, you know, you're going to feel the pressure when the public's on you to have to get, um, get in the back of the kitchen to have to prove yourself, you know, cause your food will become scrutinized, but just remember, it's not just about your food and like, don't feel that pressure, like where the business needs you is front and center. And I remember that when I want to crawl into a hole and cry <laughs> every <laughs> once in a while. Um, yeah, I think letting go and let, letting people do and make mistakes. You can't do everything and you got to ask for help and you got to de delegate. Um, and that's the best thing that I've done for myself. I think having a child also helps where it's like I can't do it all. You know, I have to trust people, uh, even if they make mistakes. Yeah. And last question, what is your why? So like, why did you choose to restaurant? Because I wanted to build community. I wanted to build for myself, um, for the community that I was in, but also I wanted to create, I wholeheartedly believed in the snapshot of the Arab bakeries that I saw in, in the Arab world and the amazing um, energy and life that they created uh, for the communities around them. I really wanted to do that um, in my spaces to have people imagine a world that felt inclusive and equitable. Um, so that continues to be my why and I still believe it's possible. It's been a journey to get there, but yeah, that's that's what I aim to do is to change, change the model. Because I do think food spaces can be liberatory, but unfortunately, the way they've been set up in this country, it's been hard to get there. I think with your worker-owned model, it's a, it's a step yeah. in that direction for sure. Yeah. Um, awesome. This has been great. We thank you. Really enjoyed this conversation. Um, Al, you want to wrap us up? 
Sure. Do we have any? Uh, we usually do like some opening soon announcements. I'm not sure if there's anybody in the Oakland San Fran area that's a friend or a um, share of a community kitchen that you want to shout out that's recently opened or opening soon. Um, that's recently opening. Oh, you know, there there a shout out to. Um, there is a pop up um, happening. But Jeff Davis, Chef Jeff Davis, and I think he used to work at um, Quince and Sorrel and all those places. And he is doing a pop-up. He's an amazing chef in the Bay Area. Dan, do you have any while she's looking at it? Yeah. Um, for us, well, we're going to Ladiv tomorrow night, which I'm very excited about. It's from Golden Age Hospitality. Um, and Nicole is the chef there. She... Um, She's also the chef over at the Nine, so that just opened on the Lower East Side. I'm excited to check it out. That's that's my big opening soon announcement. Yeah. Did you find Jeff's place? Yeah, Bordell. Bordell. Yeah, Bordell. Um, yeah, it's just like amazing, like soul food. You know, uh, just food of his childhood. It has things like strawberry ice box pie, but like in the most fancy presentation. Um, yeah, Love he's it. doing these Sunday suppers everywhere, so I'm really excited to check one of those out. Cool. Well, I wish we were able to get out there on the West Coast. Yeah. Soon enough, soon enough. Tell us, um, tell us, Reem, where we find you and the restaurant on social and online. Uh, yeah, so I um, I can be found mostly on social media. I am. I would be remiss not to uh, promote my new cookbook. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Arabiya, um, which translates to Arab woman, um, recipes from the life of an Arab in diaspora. And this is really a culmination of my experience of how my how I found myself, uh, how I made myself. Uh, on myself all the way to my why I guess through food through the journey of food so it's a story told through food um, and it is available wherever cookbooks are sold um, recipes from the life of an Arab diaspora uh, and uh, we you can find me mostly on social media promoting that book I'm at reem.aseel on Instagram and reem's California uh, for the business uh, you can check our whereabouts and what we're up to and all of the exciting news of our expansion. Well, Congratulations on everything. Congratulations. And you can find us at We Are Opening Soon and at Till at NYC. Thank you so much again for sharing. Thank you. Opening Soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.